Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, you and I are talking today on the 100th anniversary of the U.S. entry into World War One, and that'll be our topic for the day. And I want to start here on sort of a, a macro point about history and a nation's collective memory, because unlike World War Two which still occupies this central role in how America thinks about itself, World War I feels almost forgotten, at, at least by mass society. And surely you can attribute some of that to the fact that we do still have some World War II veterans among us, but um, certainly that's not all of what's going on here. So to what do you ascribe this? Why was this event that was so seminal and so all-consuming at the time sort of relegated to a footnote in the story that America tells about itself? I think there was two reasons. One, that was an optional war for Americans in the sense that when we went to war and finally declared it and it was approved by the Senate and the House, the Joint Declaration on April 6 of 1917, we didn't really have to go in the sense that there was not an existential threat. I know there was a Zimmerman telegram and there were, and France and, and Britain probably would have fallen because Germany had rushed 200 divisions to the Western Front after knocking out Russia, but it still was an optional decision. And then second, people, this, it was never known as World War I until about 1942, and then suddenly when Germany invaded Russia in June 22nd of 1941, people said, wow, this border war is a global war, and therefore World, the Great War is now World War I, and this is World War II. So People looked back at it and thought it didn't solve anything. We thought it solved things, and then uh, World War II came along. So in the American mindset, and an irony, the 60 million who were killed in World War II in some strange way could be justified as a noble cause in a way that the 18 million in World War I was a waste. Part of that also is because the Kaiser and German nationalism, Prussian nationalism, Austro-Hungarian nationalism was not considered the existential threat to Europe, although I think it was, uh, as was later Italian and German fascism. And so, as again, the result is that Americans sort of said, well, we went over there once and got in their business on an option, and it didn't solve anything, and then... When we did finally went, had to go back again and do it the right way and occupy Germany and defeat them and make sure they behaved, so that first that first effort wasn't really success. Woodrow Wilson famously ran for re-election as president in 1916 on the slogan "He kept us out of war," but as the date of this anniversary connotes, he got us in pretty shortly after being re-elected. Um, how would you, Victor? rate him as a wartime commander-in-chief, and how did he do in managing the peace? Um, he did one thing right, and that is he turned over all control of U.S. operational uh, tactics and then long-term strategy to John Pershing, who was pretty good. And remember, World War I was basically for us not a global war. It, it was not waged by us really at uh, – 
at sea, nor was it waged by us much in the air, nor was it waged by us outside on the other fronts in the Italian front or the Middle East. It was a trench warfare, so it was a U.S. Army show, and Pershing made all the decisions. I mean, it was sort of that war, remember, Marshall Folk in, in France and Ludendorff in Hindenburg in Germany and Haig in Britain. They, they, it wasn't like World War II. They just ran things, and the civilians backed off. So Wilson had no real control. It, Pershing made all the decisions whether or not to integrate, how well to integrate with Allied forces. On the peace, he wasn't very good because on the Peace of Versailles, he came, he didn't understand human nature. In other words, the war was over in November. And as you remember, the, he didn't get it over to Europe until January. And then it didn't really, you know, it, it didn't end until June. And so... In that four-month period, I think 75% of the Allied forces just went home. So by the time he got to Versailles and started dictating in this very idealistic, utopian view, facts on the ground had changed. The German army walked back to Germany and immediately said to the German people, Ludendorff and Hindenburg said, we never lost. We surrendered in France and Belgium. Then we came back because riots broke out, because we were stabbed in the back by Jews and communists. And by the way, there's really no army to tell us what to do anymore. And they've all gone home. So when they got to Versailles, they said, Wilson promised us the 14 points. And we made all of these 400-some points in the treaty that Wilson jammed down the throats of the British and the French and the Italians, but he just didn't understand human nature. He had no way of enforcing it. And his allies basically said to him, you have a 3,000-mile ocean, and you're telling us that we have to, you know, sing Kumbaya and all be friends, but we're right next to the German army, and they were humiliated for now and defeated, but they're not defeated for good, and they're going to be right next to us. And you've done the worst thing. You've made them feel angry because... You put the war, war guilt on them, but then you have no mechanism to stop them from coming back because the League of Nations is a joke. And let's, it would have been much better to cut to the quick if Wilson had just forgot the Versailles Treaty and said, you know what, we're not going to have an armistice. We're going to have a defeat, unconditional surrender. He'd sent the American army of almost two million men into Berlin, occupied it, divided the, divided the country like we did in World War II and then integrated Germany, uh, defeated Germany back into the, uh, the family of nations, and then put U.S. troops in France uh, with the guarantees they would deter future German aggression, and we wouldn't have had a World War II. Let's talk for a minute about the role of technology in World War I. The famous line is that this is a war where they rode in on horseback and rode out on tanks. How did that change in technology affect the war itself, and how did it affect the way the warfare was conducted thereafter? Well, there's two things to remember about the changing technology. What killed people in World War I were two things. The mass production of artillery shells and the several million, you know, like 20 million shells per year, finally, and the mass production of machine gun bullets. <laughs> so although they had machine guns, and they'd had artillery, they never had it at that quantity. So 75% of the, 
of the men killed in World War One or wounded were either wounded by artillery shells or machine gun bullets. Some for rifle and mines and all that, but basically it was a war of people in static positions being torn apart by machine guns when they went over the top and being torn apart when they sat there by artillery. Tanks and airplanes, um, and they made a lot of them, we forget sometimes, they made 6,000 tanks in World War One, and they made probably 15,000 or maybe even 20,000 airplanes, but they didn't do a lot of damage. So the lesson was, these sort of like the atomic bomb in World War Two. it didn't kill a lot of people, but it ended the war in a way that was kind of eerie, and the same thing was true of World War One. that when the British successfully used tanks in a couple of breakouts, and then they combined them with air power, wasn't, over the scope of four years, it wasn't that fundamental, but boy, it was at the end of the war, and people said, this is the future of warfare, and it was. In the aftermath of the war, Victor, you had two big empires, the Ottoman and the Austro-Hungarian, fragmenting into a bunch of independent states. You also had that happening with some of the Baltic territories that used to belong to Russia. And this was with the blessing of President Wilson. The concept of self-determination was one of those 14 points, and it, it later got codified into the UN Charter as well. Uh, that movement has its critics, if not of the idea itself, in some cases of the degree to which it's been taken. Usually the argument isn't so much that we should go back to imperialism, but that the concept of self-determination gets taken to an extreme, and you end up with these states that just are sustainable. In, in your judgment, is there some validity to that? Have we moved yeah. too far towards decentralization? Oh, absolutely. What Wilson created, he handed to Hitler the platform for the Nazi party's growth because he said uh, self-determination by ethnic identity and language, and all of a sudden Hitler came in, he said, we've got you know two million Germans in Czechoslovakia, we've got a million of them in Poland, we have a million of them in the Alsace-Lorraine, and they all, by Wilson's own logic, need to have representation because they're oppressed minorities, and then, of course, the Balkans again. And so, I, oddly, Wilson was basically saying your ethnic identification defines who you are rather than you know being incidental to your character, and that that's always dangerous, as we've seen from Iraq and Yugoslavia and Rwanda. So to the degree that you have a lot of minorities of roughly equal numbers, it's better to let them keep their identity in private and then their public persona should be integrated and assimilated and rather than accentuated. But he, he, I don't think he meant to do that, but that was the result of what he did. When the, these four empires, German, Russian, Ottoman, and Austria, broke up, they all thought that it was a, a liberal thing to do to fight with one another and get their own ethnic kingdom. And the pe person who was best at it was Hitler. Victor, in terms of personnel, American military leadership, how important was World War One in terms of shaping World War Two? The analogy that I'm thinking of here is you always hear the stories about these Civil War commanders, for instance, who cut their teeth fighting alongside each other in the Mexican War. W was there a similar dynamic with some of the big figures of World War Two having sort of formative experiences in World War One? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, um, people who were most prominent in World War One uh, of the major guys later in World War Two were George Patton, who was severely wounded in World War One, at least his rear end was almost blown off, and 
people argue about the extent of the of that wound. But then MacArthur, and we never know what whether he was lying or not when he went up for a Medal of Honor that he said he was knocked out. But both of them had combat experience in World War One in a way that, and Harry Truman did as well. But um, in a way that Eisenhower and uh, some others did not. But there were core core commanders. I mean, not combat experience, and there were core commanders in World War II that had served in World War I as well. Not to the extent of the German army. If you look at the uh, all the big names in the German army, von Klieg, von Rundstedt, Guderian, Rommel, every single one of them not only was in World War I, but had been pretty severely wounded. And that was, a, that was important if you were in the German army. If you were not in World War I and you had not been in combat, you were not going to get a, a ranking position in the Wehrmacht. Victor, this is the last thing I'll ask you on this topic. Yeah. I, I had a conversation some while ago on a podcast for the Strategica series that you helm out of Hoover. Yes. And um, the person I was interviewing, you have to forgive me, I've forgotten who it was now, but they, they drew comparisons between the World War One era and the current age on the grounds that it just – it feels like there are powder kegs all over the world and that there is this dizzying series of scenarios in which you could imagine them going off in a, a sort of chain reaction that would lead to something bigger. Do um, you have any sympathy for that view? Yeah, I do. I don't know whether the proper comparison is 1913 or 1936 to 1939 when you had the Spanish Civil War, Abyssinia. Um, etc., Manchuria that were precursors for the global war, but both of them have one thing in common, and that is that powers that were not necessarily the strongest powers in the world uh, felt that war was an option in which they might get more than have to pay more, and that was a result of a deterrent loss on the part of the United States, um, Britain. France and Russia dash the Soviet Union. And so then war comes along as sort of a barometer of who's strong and who's weak. And looking back on it, we think to ourselves, why in the world would the Italians and the Japanese and the Germans end up in an alliance uh, against Britain, the United States, Russia, and then the manpower of China and India? I mean, it just seems absurd. U.S. had a larger GDP after in World War II than all the others combined. And the same thing is in two of World War I. And the answer is that they were not apprised of that fact. The Kaiser was not apprised. It's a stupid thing to invade France, get in a war with Britain, why you're fighting Imperial Russia, why the United States will probably come in at some point in the same way that Hitler should have understood that. But because we had not made that crystal clear to them, they thought that there was more to be gained by aggression than, than not. And that's a good lesson because we think that strong powers start wars. And I think more often it's weaker powers have contempt for stronger powers that they feel either can't or won't deter them. And I think Putin is a good example of somebody who thinks, well, if I had all those carriers that the United States does, I would really be um, hard to stop. But they don't do anything with them. They don't stop me, so I have special contempt for them, and I'm going to try something else. And that's true of the Chinese and the Iranians as well. All right. That's all the time that we have for today's show. Until the next one, you can read all of Victor's commentary by stopping by hoover.org. 
We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hanson and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.